1: What does motion sound like? With Kizzik Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizzik.com socks.
0: Welcome, everyone. This is Jessica Zhu. I am Assistant Professor of Religion at University of Southern California at Dornsife and the New Books Network host in Buddhist Studies. Today, we are very lucky to have Professor Qing from National Taiwan University to talk with us about his new book, Toward a new image of Paramatta, Yogacara and Tathagatagarbha Buddhism Revisited. This is published by Bloomsbury Series Studies in World Philosophies in 2023. So, welcome, Ching. Thank you so much for devoting this monograph to such an important yet very understudied philosopher in world philosophy, Paramatta. It's certainly one of the most difficult books for me to read, so I cannot imagine how much work and care you put into researching and writing this important monograph. While I'm not sure I can fully follow the complex logic and arguments in your chapters, but I do find your book raises many far-reaching questions that I feel many more aspiring philosophers and scholars of Buddhist philosophy should follow up. Thanks to your book, for example, I realized that I never read any of Parramatta's translations in detail, even though I claim I do Yogacara, Vinyabdi Matra. But after reading your book, um, I realized that I cannot continue to dodge this issue by claiming that I only do modern Yogacara. That's only focus on Xuanzang and Kui But, you know, to fill up this big hole in my own knowledge, I have started reading Parramatta's Shodachanglun Chenglun um, Mahasanga <clears throat> Uh, uh, Mahayana Sangraha with my friends on a weekly basis. I hope the listeners will find similar inspirations in this interview to start their own investigation of this fascinating philosopher and this complex and still evolving philosophical tradition of Yogacara and Vinyapti Matra. And I certainly hope more listeners will pick up this important book and start reading it. Also, to share a bit of my own reading experience, if, even if you are like me, who often felt totally lost, unable to follow the logic or the technical aspect of things, you can still get a sense of the big picture. The book has touched upon so many unanswered questions, um, um, fascinating philosophical paradoxes, and forgotten episode in, in history so that um, it compels others to come and study more and join the conversation.
1: Okay, thank you, Jessica, for your wonderful introduction, uh, for your invitation and for the wonderful introduction and kind words. It's my great honor and pleasure to discuss my book with you. I cannot agree more with you that Paramarta is a fascinating figure who remains uh, understudied, and am hoping that my book will be able to draw more interest in him. I was happy to know that you started reading Parmata's Da Lun. And I'm hoping that my book will be of some use for your purpose. I should mention at the beginning that given the time constraints, I have to skip a lot of details. The audience should feel free to contact me for any further questions.
0: Thank you, Qing. I'll make sure I put your contact in our uh, New Books Network blog post. Yes, please do. Yeah. So, normally I'd start interview with the traditional New Books Network question on your own intellectual journey, your biography, what led you to work on Parramatta and so on and so forth. But today, because Paramatta is such an understudied figure. So to better orient your listeners, could you please first explain to us very briefly uh, who was Parramatta what did he, he, he do and what was China like during Paramartha's time and why it is so important for us to know about his works and his philosophy and what are the main difficulties or obstacles in studying him?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, let me begin with some brief intro- information about Paramartha. Paramartha originated from Western India and was invited to Southern China to translate Buddhist texts. When he arrived in Nanjing at the age of 48 in 546, however, the Liang dynasty was already in a political turmoil, which interrupted his translation work. At one point, he planned to quit and left China, but he changed his mind due to the invitation by a local official in Guangzhou and stayed there until his death in 569. It was in his last career when he met excellent Chinese disciples and translated his most important works, including Vasubandhu's Abhidhamma Kosha Pashya Abhidhammo Jisalun, Vasubandhu's 20 Verses, Da Seng Wei Lun, etc. The most important work among his translation is Se Da Lun, or simply Se Lun. Namely, Paramartha's translation of Asanga's Mahayana Sangraha, together with Vasubandhu's commentary. In addition to his translation of the Abhidharma and Yogacara texts, Paramartha is also regarded by later Chinese Buddhist texts, a Buddhist tradition, as the translator of the Awakening of Faith, 大乘起信论, a seminal Dadagaragarbha text that has been extremely influential in East Asian Buddhist traditions. Beginning from the 20th century, as some of you may know, serious doubts have been cast on the traditional attribution of the awakening phase to Paramartha. And this attribution is an essential part of what I call the traditional image of Paramartha, which I shall challenge in this book. So why, then, is it important to study Paramarta? First, Paramartha is a key figure in understanding the issue of the sinicization of Buddhism, namely, how Indian Buddhism became Chinese Buddhism. That is to say, if we read Tamakiyati, roughly 7th century, in parallel with Fazang, also roughly 7th century, then would have a feeling that they were dealing with very different issues in quite different manners. And this feeling would become even stronger if we compare the works of Zongkava, for example, with the Chang Gong Ans. Along the same line, one of the hottest debates in Chinese Buddhism is the criticism of Parmata from Xuanzang's disciples. This is the, dis- uh, the dispute between the so-called New translation, Xin Yi, by Xuanzang, versus the old translation, Zhou Yi, by Paramarta. But we may wonder both Xuanzang and Paramarta translated Chara works. So why did they disagree with each other? A still popular assumption here is that Paramarta was influenced by Garba, namely by the awakening of faith and hence deviated from the orthodox Indian Yogacara transmitted by Xuanzang. Later on, Paramartha and the Wakena phase became the mainstream of Chinese Buddhism, and this marks the beginning of the sinicization of Buddhism. I should also mention that the sinicization of Buddhism is still relevant even in Buddhism in the 20th century, as reflected in the debates between Lu Chen a focus of your study, Jessica, and Xiong Another important aspect of the study of Paramarka is that he provides invaluable information about the transition of Indian Buddhism between Vasubandhu and Dignaga on the one, on the one side, and the Tamabala and Pa Vivega on the other. For example, in chapter 6 of this book, I propose that the approximate to the notion of jie xin, the focal point of this whole book, is not to be found in the awakening of faith, but rather is in the translations of Xuanzang. In other words, in Paramartha's work, we find a primitive form of a notion whose more developed form is found in Xuanzang. So Paramartha can serve as a missing piece between Vasubandhu and Tamabala. But as shown in this book, Paramartha has been distorted by the later Chinese reinterpretations, mainly through the lens of the awakening phase. To find out any correct information about Indian Buddhism from Paramartha's work, the first step would be to recover the real Paramartha. And this is the mission of my book.
0: Thank you, Qin, for such a loose um, introduction of this fascinating figure. And I think the most important aspect for the listeners is that instead of putting Parramatta and Xuanzang on opposite ends of things, actually, your book is trying to put them in a continually evolving line of how Yugachara evolved Precisely. from India. Yeah. Uh, yes. I just want to prime our listeners that um, we've been talking about She Da Chenglun Mahayana Sangraha. Its English translation is a summary of the great vehicle, and both Xuanzang and Parramatta translated this text by Asanga. Yes. So, now Qing, I'd like to follow up with the traditional New Books Network. Could you please tell our listeners a bit more about yourself and how you came to research on Parramatta?
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. I grew up and uh, did my basic academic training in Taiwan until I went to pursue my PhD at Harvard University in uh, 2001. And this book is a revision of my uh, doctoral dissertation submitted in uh, 2009, and it took me a long time to revise this book and finally publish it. So I decided to work on Palomarita for two reasons. First. I was very much intrigued by the issue of the sinicization of Buddhism, as reflected in the debates between Palamarta and Xuanzang. This interest was inspired mainly by my advisor, Professor Robert Gimello, one of the most knowledgeable scholars of Chinese Buddhism, and also a very pious practicing Catholic. Second, through Professor Gimello and my classmate, uh, Michael Radich, Currently, professor of Buddhist study at the University of Heidelberg, I learned that Professor Toolu Funayama at Kyoto University was about at that time to conduct a five-year research seminar on Paramarta. I then decided to work on Paramarta because I was hoping to take advantage of Professor Funayama's seminar and learn from his, uh, from him and from his colleagues. I'm most uh, grateful to these uh, three people for leading me into this journey of discovery.
0: Thank you, Qing. I hope your, disco- your journey will inspire many more scholars to undertake such sophisticated studies that combine philology, philosophy, and sinology. So your book has seven chapters with the introduction and the conclusion. I want to start with the introduction. So in the introduction, you outline for us, what is the traditional image of Parramatta and what are the known problems with this traditional image and what are the status of the current scholarship in both Japanese and English mainly on this topic and how your book pushes the field forward. We will review your book chapter by chapter, but for now, could you please just um, briefly explain to us the key problems you want to solve in this book and how you plan to do it?
1: Yes. Uh, The main thesis of this book is that the traditional image of Paramahata is a distorted one. It represents a reinterpretation of Paramahata, mainly through the lens of the awakening of faith. And what I mean by the traditional image of Paramahata consists of two parts. First, Paramahata synthesizes Yogacara and Dharagaragarbha traditions by introducing Dathgadagarbha notions into his translation of Yogacara texts. Second, it was Paramartha who translated the Awakening of Faith. This again proves that Paramartha endorses Dathgadagarbha thought. In the introduction, I identified three presuppositions underlying the traditional image of Paramartha. Paramartha was the translator of the awakening of faith. B. Paramartha stood against Shenzang because the latter transmitted the kind of Yogacara that was not blended with Tathagatagarbha. C. Yogacara and Tathagatagarbha were two opposing and incompatible traditions in Indian Buddhism. In this book, I shall suggest that none of the three presuppositions are true. Concerning the current state of the field there is actually very little study about paramartha in English Diana Paul's book from uh, 1984 entitled Philosophy of Mind in 6th Century China Paramartha's Evolution of Consciousness provides studies of a work entitled Zhuan Shi Lun uh, that is traditionally uh, attributed to Paramartha which uh, scholars mostly uh, agree that it was a kind of variant translation of the Trimshika. And in addition, Sally King's 1991 book entitled *Buddha Nature* is a study of Paramartha's *Foshin Lun*, or in English, a treatise on Buddha Gotra. However, neither of these two books challenges the traditional image of Paramartha. Now, concerning scholarship on Paramita in East Asia, the majority among Buddhologists in East Asia still hold the view that the Awakened Face is closely related to Paramita, even if it was not directly translated by him. Recently, however, uh, a scholar called uh, named Odake Susumu's book, published in 2017, convincingly shows that. The awakening face cannot have been translated by Paramatta, because it is a, a patchwork of words or phrases from Chinese Buddhist texts circulated in sixth uh, century northern China. Uh, this book joins the uh, Odake by suggesting that the key notion of Paramitas uh, have been misinterpreted due to the association of the awakening face with paramatta. So again. This book aims at deconstructing the traditional image of Paramarta. My main thesis is that the traditional image was mainly the result of interpreting Paramarta through the lens of the awakening of faith.
0: Thank you, Ching, for orienting the readers and listeners about the state of the field and your your own main thesis. So um, chapter one zooms into a key term that is central to an accurate understanding of Paramatta's philosophy, uh, which you already primed us um, in the introduction, Could you please tell us what are the two competing readings of jie um, as you call them, the permanence rating and impermanence rating, and what are some of the evidences, um, pieces of evidence that you you think could help us uh, disentangle or poss- um, possibly disentangle Paramatta's own use of this term, and what you call the the, the later interp- reinterpretation interpretation of Paramatta through so the lens of awakening phase, um, yeah, and then um maybe also, for example, is complicated relations or intertextualities with um, Dacheng Qixinlun awakening phase through Zhang's Huayan tradition. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, uh, jiexing is the focal point of this whole book as mentioned before. It is a notion that appears only two times in Paramarita's Zhe Lun. The first time simply says that jiexing is something innate to the storehouse consciousness, ali, ali ye shi. The second occurrence states that when one starts to tread on the Buddhist path, the innate jie becomes mixed with the permeation or perfumation of hearing, wen xun xi, from outside. And this uh, mixture then serves as the basis for a noble person, the Aryas. From Paramartha's two passages, however, it is hard to tell uh, exactly what jixing meant for him. In chapter one, I trace all the occurrences of this notion jixing in the Chinese Buddhist canon, and conclude that almost all authors identify jixing with, uh, with the notion of original awakening, ben Jue, in the awakening of faith. At first look, this seems to support the traditional image of paramita. Namely, he introduces Dathakaragarbha notion, such as jie xin, into his translation of Yogacara texts, and hence make a synthesis between Yogacara and Dathakaragarbha. However, with the help of C-beta, namely searchable digital Chinese Buddhist canon, I found a different interpretation of jie xin, preserved in a long-lost fragment, that was found in Donghuang in the early 20th century, namely Donghuang manuscript in the Oriel Stein collection number 2747, which is also included in the Taisho canon as Taisho number 2805. The difference between the two interpretations is pretty straightforward. According to the interpretation that identifies Jie Xin with original awakening, Jie Xin is unconditioned because original awakening is unconditioned. In the awakening of faith, original awakening is unconditioned because it is identified with the tama tama uh, tamakaya or fasen of the Buddha, which is unanimously agreed to be unconditioned. In contrast, the interpretation in Taisho 2805 rejects outright the identification of Jie xin with Tama body and insists that Jie xin is conditioned, Wu Chang or Anidya in Sanskrit. For those uh, who are not familiar with these notions of unconditioned and, un- and uh, uh, conditioned, uh, this is a basic distinction among dharmas originating from the Abhidharma tradition. Conditioned means a causally conditioned. Whatever that has a cause is conditioned. Conversely, unconditioned refers to that which has no cause, and hence remains the same permanently. So now, so now the crucial difference is: if xing is unconditioned, meaning that it lies outside of any causal chains, and hence jiexing will be permanent and never changes. Conversely, if jiexing is conditioned then it belongs to a causal chain and must be impermanent. So now we have two interpretations of Jaising, what I call permanence, in, uh, permanence reading, that is associated with the awakening of faith, versus the impermanence reading, that is preserved in Taisho 2805. So the next issue would be to determine which of the two interpretations better represents Paramartha's original thought.
0: Thank you Qing for laying out these main threads in your coming arguments. So Permanence reading against impermanence reading. Which one is more closer to Paramatta's thinking? So now, in Chapter Two, you lead readers deeper into the history and reception of Paramatta and cast doubt on the attribution of a awakening phase to him. Could you please um, reiterate for the listeners who have yet to read your book what are the main philosophical evidence that allow you to um, clarify Paramatta's relationship with this? a awakening phase that's so influential in all of East Asian Buddhism. And I'm thinking about the key doctrinal differences between what you just mentioned, the conditioned and unconditioned dharmas.
1: Yes. In uh, Chapter 2, the main goal is to ask the readers to pause and to reflect upon possible weakness of the traditional image of Paramartha. The traditional image is founded on the attribution of the awakening phase to Paramartha. Namely, the traditional image tells us that Paramartha introduces Tathagatagarbha notions such as Jiexing into his Se Under this account, Jiexing is interpreted to mean the same thing as original awakening in the awakening of But the problem is, as is well known, that since early 20th century, the attribution of the awakening of to Paramartha has been caught into serious doubt. Now imagine if the awakening of faith has been proved to be unconnected with panamata What would happen to the traditional image? To cast doubt on the attribution, I first review the debates about the origin of the awakening of faith and conclude that all the pieces of evidence for its Indian origin are not persuasive. But with only one exception, namely the only strong evidence for the association of the awakening phase with Paramarta, is that the earliest teachers of the awakening phase were at the same time the earliest teachers of Paramarta's servant. This is a historical fact that endorses the close connections between awakening phase and Paramarta and I shall refute this piece of evidence in Chapter 5. Second, I point out in Chapter 2 the philosophical or doctrinal difference between the original phase and Paramartha. In the works of Paramartha, it is explicitly claimed that unconditioned can cannot function because it lies outside of any causal chains. For the same reason, Unconditioned tarma cannot be acted upon or permeated. But the awakened face unequivocally claims that thusness being un- uh, unconditioned, can permeate ignorance from within and can also be permeated by ignorance. This distinction between the awakened face and paramata cannot be overemphasized and will be a recurring theme throughout his this book. Finally, suppose I can show that Taisho twenty-eight hundred five, which preserves the imperman- impermanent reading of jesing, is closely connected with the Paramarta, then this would serve as an indirect, albeit quite strong, in my opinion, evidence against the attribution of the Awakening Phase to Paramarta. Bear in mind that the Awakening Phase supports the permanence reading of jesing. And this text is what I shall do in chapter three and chapter four.
0: Great, now let's segue into chapter three. In chapter three, to be honest, is the most difficult chapter for me. Um, it's very philological. I have to go back and forth between the charts in your book and your main text and, and then back to your main text and, and then sometimes you go back to the uh, text um, 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 Taishu 2805. Uh, just to get a sense of the impressive amount of evidence you laid out for the readers, because, you know, it references to, um, you know, different terms in different texts um, and compare that with uh, uh, Paramatas' kind of confirmed translations and then T2805. So... But without these visual aids, right, it's quite difficult to explain here in this podcast to the listeners what's going on. So maybe you could give us one or two examples of your philological evidence, like the idiosyncratic terms that Parramatta used that also appeared in the Dunhuang Manuscript, um, Stein Collection 2747, also called now Na- Na- Taishu 2805, um, and why these philological details are important for your argument.
1: Sure. And I think you are quite right that chapter 3 is a philological study of Taisho 2805. And uh, when I tried to identify the possible author of Taisho 2805, I came across difficulties that seemed unresolvable. Almost no study was ever done about this fragment. We don't know anything about its date nor about its author. Uh, One of my teachers once suggested to me to try using carbon-14 dating, but I think that would not work. First of all, the British Library, which houses the original fragment, may not allow me to do the test. Second, by the dating, we know at best the rough dates of the paper and ink, but we still have no idea about the date of the content. So at that time, I thought I was uh, moving toward a dead end. With the help of C-Beta, a breakthrough came when I realized that Paramarta and his translation team used some idiosyncratic terminology, which almost no other translators shared. Here I just give our audience just one most distinct example. All translators of Chinese Buddhist texts including Kumara Jiva, Xuanzang, etc., used the term wu lou, meaning low le- no leaking, for the Sanskrit term "anāsrava." But, pa- but Parāmārtā used the wu liu, no outflow. And to my uh, surprise, Taisho 2805 consistently follows this is- idiosyncratic terminology of Parāmārtā. And what is even more striking is a colloquial phrase uh, in Chinese ji wu fu, meaning something like, uh, now it is no more the case that, etc., blah, 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 <coughs> appears only nine times throughout the whole Chinese Buddhist canon. Among these nine occurrences, a text by Paramahata entitled Sui Jiang Lun, Use uh, this phrase Ji Wufu three times, and uh, the fragment Taisho 2805 uses it twice. Based on this, I think it is very likely that the author of Taisho 2805 was the scribe when Paramarta translated the "Shui Xiang Lun. Further, I also suggest that the author of Taisho 2805 originated from southern China, because this fragment uses several terms that were never used in northern China. Finally, a few anonymous examples suggest that Taisho 2805 was composed after its author had some contact with Buddhism in northern China around 590, especially with Huiyuan of the Jingyin Temple, usually called Jingsi Huiyuan who was a famous uh, scholar monk of the Di Lun tradition during early Sui dynasty. The philological evidence provided is quite strong for proving that Taisho 2805 was very close to Paramartha's translation team, and hence should have preserved Paramartha's authentic teaching about jiexing. However, I think this is not enough because it is still possible, although unlikely, That counter-evidence exists in the texts that were lost. Hence, I think the philological evidence is not conclusive. I need to find more evidence to prove the close connection between Taisho 2805 and Paramahata. And I do this in uh, the following chapter 4 and chapter 5.
0: Awesome. So let's segue into chapter four. So in this chapter, you switch back to the philosophical and doctrinal modes of analysis. So you argue that there is remarkable doctrinal consistency between um, Taishu 2805 of Stein 2747 and some of the known Paramatas works. Some of the central concepts that you analyze for the readers, here is, um, for example, like, Xin Yi Shi, mind, mentation, and consciousness, Liao and Yin, the disclosing cause. Um, at which stage of the paramatta, uh, at which stage of the Bodhisattva path is the Dharma body attained? Those are the kind of three main. Seems I picked up. So for the benefits of the listeners, could you please maybe pick one or two main lines of argument in this chapter and explain to us what are some of the doctrinal consistencies that you see in addition to the philological kind of consistency?
1: Mm, sure. So in Chapter 4, I showed that Taisho 2805 shares with other works of Paramarta several doctrinal positions that were uncommon Around the late 6th to early 7th century. It is particularly striking that uh, even when Panamata's Seilun deviates and differs from the original text of Asanga or Vasubandhu, Taisho 2805 consistently agrees with Paramartha. And Taisho 2805 also provides some insight into the obscure passages in the Seilun about the connection between the storehouse consciousness and the enjoyment body samboka kaya or shouyongshen in chinese based on this point of agreement between Taichou 2005 and paramarta i conclude that uh, paramarta must have pre- uh, sorry i conclude that 805 uh, must have preserved the authentic teaching of paramarta a conclusion that corroborates my observations in ch- chapter 3 in particular here, I want to draw the audience's attention to the idea present both in Parmata's work and in Taisho 2805, namely the idea that the Dharma body is unconditioned and the enjoyment body is conditioned. Parmata's work and Taisho 2805 also share the idea that after one becomes a Buddha, namely after the so-called transformation of the basis, uh, in Sanskrit uh, Ashraya paraverti or Ashraya Parivarti. The storehouse consciousness becomes the enjoyment body. Note here that in the storehouse consciousness there was Jesing together with the defiled karmic seeds from previous lives. And after one hears the Buddhist teachings jie uh becomes uh, mixed with the permeation of hearing from outside, and the whole Buddhist path eventually eliminates all the defiled seeds. So when all the defile seeds have been eliminated, what remains in the storehouse consciousness is the mixture between jie and the permeation of hearing. So the idea that the storehouse consciousness becomes the enjoyment body, which is conditioned, also confirms the idea that jie xing is conditioned, which supports the impermanence reading in Taisho 2805. And this agreement uh, between Taisho 2805 and Paramartha's work, together with the philological evidence from chapter 3, confirms that Taisho 2805 was closely connected with Paramartha's translation team. And Uh, In the following chapter 5, I shall move on to give an answer about who the possible author of Taisho 2005 was.
0: Thank you, Ting. So chapter five is a historical argument. It's built upon the philological and philosophical arguments in the previous two chapters, but expands them. So could you explain um, to our listeners how historically the traditional image of Parramatta arose and who were the main advocates for such a portrayal of Parramatta? And why did they link him with Awakening of Face? And then, in addition, who were the true authors, possible authors of um, T uh, Taisho twenty eight oh five?
1: Yes. So, <laughs> in chapter five, I mainly collect the uh, historical clues behind the dis- uh, disagreement between the permanence reading associated with the Awakening of Face versus the impermanence reading associated with Taisho twenty eight oh five. I begin with reviewing the reports around the 600 in capital, Chang'an, from the Sanlun master Ji Zhang and his colleague Hui Jin about the two different views held by Paramarta's disciples, namely the so-called Serlun 社論 masters, Shi. Between these two views, I show that one agrees with the permanence reading and the other agrees with the impermanence reading. This indicates that around the year 590 to 600 in Chang'an, there were two groups of Serun masters. I named them Serlun-Awakening of Faith Lineage and Serlun-Taisho 2805 Lineage, respectively. I then pinpoint a monk named Tan Qian as the leader of the Selun Daesh Awakening of Faith lineage. Tan Jian was a monk from Northern China and fled to the South during the persecution of Buddhism by Emperor Wu of the Northern Zhou Dynasty. He came across Paramarita's work in Nanjing and then taught them when he got back to Chang'an in 587. Two things were crucial about Tan Jian. First, he was regarded as the earliest promoter of Paramartha's teaching in northern China, but he never studied with Paramartha nor with any of his disciples. Second, Tanqing was closely connected with the Awakening of Faith because he taught Paramartha's She Lun together with the Awakening of Faith. So, for these two reasons, I identify Tan Qian as the leader of the Sertun Dash Awakening of Face lineage. Concerning the possible author of Taichou 2805, let's review again the clues I gathered from Chapter 3. The author of Taichou 2805 should have been a disciple of Paramarta, most likely the scribe, when Paramarta translated the Xiang Lun. And this author originated from, originated from southern China because he used the terminology that was never used in northern China. But somehow, this author also knew the key notions of Huiyuan, of the Jingin Temple in Chang'an. Now, if we look in the Xu gaosen Zuan, or the continued biography of em- eminent monks, for possible candidates of the author of Taisho 1805, then bingo, there is indeed a monk named Daoni who matches all the clues. Daoni was a disciple of Palmarta originating from southern China, but, but was summoned by the emperor to Chang'an in 590. I hence suggest that Daoni was the most likely author of Taichou 2805 and the head of of the serlun Taisho 20805 uh, lineage. We know, however, almost nothing about Downing's career in Chang'an, but the little information suggests that he died just a few years after he arrived. This explains why the serlun taisho 2805 lineage soon disappeared from history. In contrast, Tan lineage flourished to the extent that it was regarded as the only heir of Paramarta, and Tan close connection with the Awakening Face explains why the Awakening Face was later regarded as Paramarta's work. So far, I've shown that there are two interpretations of Jie Xin the permanence reading associated with the awakening of faith versus the impermanence reading preserved in Taisho 2805. And in chapters 3 to 5, I show how Ta- Taisho 2805 is close to Paramartha's translation team in terms of terminology, doctrines, and historical evidence. And hence, the uh, it is the impermanence reading that should be considered uh, to uh, have preserved the authentic teaching of Paramata about Jiexing. So then the next question is what exactly is Jiexing?
0: Thank you, Qing. Um, just for the benefit of listeners, I just want to summarize the key argument in this long um, explanation. It's like there are two groups one is led by the uh, Shilun. Uh, a beginning phase group and then the main promoter is Tanjin and the other is the um the Shilun and Tai Xiu 2805 lineage. That's main figure is Daoni who unfortunately died soon after he arrived in Chang'an. I also want to mention this for the benefits of our listeners that Sui Xianglun, Chutis on the uh, secondary mark, um, is a relatively uncontroversial work with regard to its provenance. It's just like everybody kind of agrees, Paramount's work. And it's, uh, yeah, it's Taishu 1641. I don't think I've mentioned this detail in our previous conversation. Okay, so. Um, Enough to about the details, so now moving on to Chapter 6. So in Chapter 6, um, Qing, you switch back to the philosophical and doctrinal modes of analysis. You finally give us your own analysis of jie xin, both as how Parramatta used it and how later traditions interpreted it. So could you please, for the benefit of listeners, explain what is actually jie according to Parramatta and why it is important for us to know this?
1: Yeah. So from what we gathered from Paramarata's She Lun and Taisho 2805, we know that jie is something innate to the storehouse consciousness. And it begins to become mixed with the permeation of hearing, when xinxi from outside, after one hears the Buddhist teachings. It is something impermanent. But this is pretty much all. So here I came across another difficulties, Namely, it is still hard to know what exactly jie xing is, even if we combine all the clues in Se Lun and uh, in Taisho 2805. So again, this seems to be another dead end that I ran into. And here I made a reflection. The traditional image of Paramartha has been distorted by his association with the awakening of And for this reason, Paramarta was criticized by Xuanzang's disciples. But now, if I have proved that the awakening of faith was not connected with Paramarta, then the disc- disagreement between, between Paramarta and Xuanzang might not be that wide as it, as it was usually assumed. So I wa- was wondering can I possibly try to find clues about Jie Xing? In the works of Xuanzang, after I made this move, I realized that, that strike, strikingly similar ideas could indeed be found in the translations of Yogacara works by Xuanzang, notably in the *Chenwei Shi or uh, the establishment of the theory of consciousness only, and the di Lun*, or in English, *Treatise on the Buddha*. Uh, treatise on the Buddha Pumi Sutra. Therefore, it is both legitimate and fruitful to examine what is said about Jie xin in later Chinese works by Xuanzang. Here I have to skip a lot of details. So basically, the characterizations of Jie Xin in Padmata's work and Taisho 2805 is very close to the idea of uh, originally existent uncontaminated seeds, in Chinese, 本有無露種子, in the Sutra, or, originally existent uncontaminated buddha godra, in the Lun. The ideas of seeds and buddha godra also suggest that 节兴 is conditioned. According to both Paramartha and Xuanzang. Jiexing, or the originally existent uncontaminated seeds or Buddha Godra, exists from beginning this time in the storehouse consciousness. It becomes mixed with the permeation of hearing from outside and continues to the end of the Buddha, Buddhist path. After the transformation of the basis, Jiexing becomes the enjoyment body of the Buddha. The development of jie to the enjoyment body is a causal process, with both jie and enjoyment body being conditioned. So to conclude chapter 6, jie refers to a primitive form of the idea of uncontaminated seeds, or Buddha Godra, that were further, development, uh, further developed in the works of Xuanzang. We failed to see this because we were too much biased or misled by the traditional image of Parmata, and hence by mistake thought Parmata and Xuanzang held diametrically different views.
0: Well, this is a very surprising finding. So. Paramatas jeing is really a crucial link in understanding the development of the idea um, the yogacara idea of uncontaminated seas
1: mm-hmm. but uh, um, to be honest uh, when I started this journey I never expected
0: this <laughs> this is very you know very surprising so you know I just like put a plug for the future scholars there are probably many more. Other mm-hmm. similar links that are yet to be discovered?
1: Sure, sure, sure.
0: Yes. So in Chapter 7, uh, Qing, you made an, um, uh, a historical argument by demonstrating that the continuity between Paramata's Yugachara and later Xuanzang's Yugachara. So the title of this chapter is your argument. Basically, you said this is titled Paramata as a successor to Vasubandhu. Could mm-hmm. you please tell us more? What are the continuities and differences between the three, among the three philosophers, Vasubandhu, Paramartha, and Xuanzang?
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, the question I aim to answer in Chapter 7 is, if Paramartha is proved not to be the translator of the awakening of faith, then to what extent, if any, does Paramartha still subscribe to uh, to thought? And to answer this question, I first draw attention to Vasubandhu, who already incorporates the notion of Tathagatagarbha in his Mahayana Sangara Pasha. Uh, according to Vasubandhu, to the extent that every sentient being shares dasness, Tatatha every sentient being is a Tathagata namely contains a Tathagata. In fact, the Dhadna Gotra Vipaga, which is often regarded as the most important Tathagatagarbha treatise, expresses the same idea, that to the extent that every sentient being shares dustness, every sentient being hence is a Dharagadagarbha. When dustness uh, is entangled with defilements, it is named Dharagadagarbha. But when defilements are all eliminated, thusness is disclosed to be the tama body of the Buddhas. To the extent that tama body is identified with dustness, and hence is unconditioned, I think Paramartha agrees with Vasubandhu and Radha to Bipaga. So, my main point is this if Paramartha is criticized for incorporating the notion of Dattagaragarbha, and somehow distorts Yogacara, then Vasubandhu should be the one who is to be blamed. <sighs> Further, I explore Paramartha's work, notably uh, his Foshin Lun*, treatise on the Buddha Gotra, to point out that for Paramartha, the Dharma body consists of both thusness and the jnana, namely knowledge or insight about thusness. This, I think, is a further development beyond Vasubandhu. In other words, every sentient being is originally endowed with Tamabadi, which consists in both thusness and the jnana about thusness. The latter means that every sentient being possesses innate knowledge, such as everything is empty. Despite this, one still needs a causal process of learning from a teacher to become aware of that innate knowledge. And Jie Xing is what makes this uh, causal uh, process possible. But uh, to answer your final question, namely the difference between uh, Paramata and Xuanzang, uh, I'm uh, still uh, trying to work this out. Uh, so I, I I hope I can uh, reserve that uh, for a for future article.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Qing. So, finally, we've reached the conclusion part of your monograph where you outline for us the implications and future research directions. So, could you please highlight for our listeners some of the main points here, especially regarding the methodological issues in working with Chinese Buddhist texts? Good.
1: Sure. And to summary, uh, summarize the whole book, uh, there are two uh, interpretations of Jie The permanence reading versus the impermanence reading. The former is connected with the awakening phase, whereas the latter with uh, Taisho 2805. I show that Taisho 2805 is similar to Paramartha's work, both in terms of terminology and doctrines, and hence it is the impermanence reading that represents Paramartha's original teaching about Xing which is a primitive form of the notion of originally existent uncontaminated seeds or Buddha Kodra found in Xuanzang's works. Conversely, this also proves that the awakening faith was not connected with Palamarta. The traditional image of Paramarta, which became well established since as early as Xuanzang's time, is a result of misinterpreting Paramartha through the lens of the awakening of faith. Finally, I show that before Paramar- Paramartha, Vasubandhu was among the earliest Yogacara thinkers who already incorporated Dattagatagarbha thought into Yogacara. So this book challenges uh, three uh, popular assumptions surrounding Paramartha, which I mentioned in the introduction. A. Paramatta was somehow responsible for the origin of the awakening phase. I suggest that the awakening phase was connected only with the Ser Lun Dash awakening phase lineage headed by Tan Qian. B. Paramatta and Xuanzang transmitted very different versions of Yogacara. I show that a more uh, developed form of the notion of jiexing. Can be found in Xuanzang's works. See, Yogacara and Dadagadagarbha were two distinct and incompatible traditions in Indian Buddhism. I show that Vasubandhu already incorporated Dadagadagarbha into Yogacara. At least for Vasubandhu and Paramartha, Yogacara and Dadagadagarbha were not incompatible. And throughout this book, I emphasize a few times that the distinction between unconditioned versus conditioned is the key to understand the authentic teaching of Paramartha. Thusness, Dharma body, are both unconditioned. And Jiexing, the enjoyment body, are conditioned. And there is no confusion whatsoever between these two in Paramartha's work. In contrast, it is a hallmark of the awakening faith that dustness can permeate and can be permeated, a claim that abandons or at least compromises the distinction between unconditioned versus conditioned. Finally, I suggest that Sinicization of, of Buddhism is a useful category because it helps to measure whether a Chinese text can provide useful information about Indian Buddhism. Suppose a text is highly synthesized, for example, such like the awakening phase, then we must not use it to reconstruct reconstruct our knowledge about Indian Buddhism. I also suggest that the easiest way to estimate whether a a Chinese Buddhist text is synthesized is to carefully examine it first in a Chinese context, as what I try to show in this book.
0: Thank you, Qing so much for um, this lucid outline. And again, I want to kind of uh, put a plug for um, our aspiring scholars. Um, As Professor Geng mentioned in the introduction that uh, he started this journey um, by, you know, because of uh, uh studied in Harvard together with his classmate Michael Radish and then um, Professor Funayama's seminar on Parramatta. Yes. So um, all these references you can find in his monograph, but start with monograph and work back way to see the, how the field developed. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you can decide whether to study with any one of them. <laughs> so, um, Jing, we've taken a lot of your time Is there anything else in the book that we didn't have time to discuss here but you'd like to highlight further for our listeners, readers and maybe future students of yours?
1: Uh, well, I, well, I think I've, I've uh, given brief summaries uh, of the whole book but let me repeat that uh, the audience uh, should feel free to contact me if uh, you know, because uh, I have to, I've already skipped uh, a lot of details in, in the brief uh, interview. So please uh, do feel free to contact me.
0: Yes, I'll make sure I put your email there. So probably yes. you'll be flooded by emails.
1: So, last question. great, great honor.
0: Yeah, so our last question. Before we part our ways, I'd like to ask one last traditional New Books Network question What are you working on? What keeps you busy?
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, well, I work uh, uh, now uh, uh, many on uh, three uh, fronts. Uh, first, uh, related to this book about Paramahata and a uh, remaining issue is about the Lankavadara Sutra. Because the Lankavadara Sutra is often cited uh, to support the traditional image of Paramahata. As some of uh, you may know, a famous phrase in the Lankavadara Sutra is, uh, in Sanskrit, Dathagadagarbaha alevinyana samshabdidaha. In English translation, it would be something like Dathagadagarbaha is named alevinyana, which seems to confuse the unconditioned, namely Dathagadagarbaha, and the conditioned, namely the and hence supports the Indian origin of the awakening face, and also the possible connection between the awakening face and the Padmata. To be honest, I failed to provide a satisfying answer to this issue in my book on Paramarta. So I've been working on the Lankavada Sutra, and my tentative answer is <coughs> the notion of Alevijnana in the Lankavada Sutra is very different from the notion of Alevijnana in the Mahayana Sangraha by Asanga and Vasubandhu. And Alevijnana is unconditioned in the Lankavara Sutra, in my opinion. But uh, this is a big issue, and I hope to share my research with you uh, and the audience in the near future. And on a different uh, uh, front, I've been reflecting on the interpretation of Confucian philosophy uh, by Mo San, uh, usually regarded as the most influential and most sophisticated thinker in contemporary neo Confucian philosophy. I criticize most interpretation of Mencius because I thought uh, most uh, interpretation of Mencius and Wang Yangming is too much influenced by the awakening phase. Namely, I think Moxuan actually uh, provided uh, a Buddhist uh, account of uh, of uh, Confucian philosophy. And finally, I've been interested in, interested in exploring how uh, consciousness functions. In particular, how a sensory consciousness, for example, a visual consciousness, and a mental consciousness work together under the Abhidharma and Yogacara tradition. And uh, uh, together with uh, Professor Mark Sideris and uh, John Beckman, I uh, co-edited a collection of essays entitled, uh, Buddhist philosophy of consciousness, tradition and dialogue, which was published in two, uh, 2020 uh, under Brio. So these are the main uh, topics that I've been, I, I am working on right now.
0: Wow, that's a very wide-ranging um, <laughs> <laughs> kind of a different kinds of topics, but somehow linked to a big new face in the background room there. Mm-hmm. Right. But thank yeah. you again for writing this important work and for sharing your insights and nuggets of knowledge that I really have to process further in the long term. And I'm looking forward to reading your new book soon.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you, Jessica, for your invitation. And uh, again, it's my great pleasure to, to talk to you.